I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, how long would a fidget spinner spin in space? And if you don't know what a fidget spinner is, we'll tell you that answer too. Also, why are weeds so persistent? And does water actually conduct electricity or not? These are some of the questions that you have been sending in and we have assembled a dream panel of scientists to answer them for you. I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. First, let's meet our panel of people. We have Beverly Glover. She's a plant scientist at the University of Cambridge. She's also the director of the Botanic Gardens in Cambridge. So, Beverly, what are you planning for at the moment? Well, lots as always, Chris, but uh, I think the big excitement in September is getting ready for our big apple day on the 22nd of October. That's where we, we try and sort out the best of the science of apples, the horticulture of apples, and what you can cook with apples, and of course lots of apple tasting with usually 30 or so heritage varieties to try as well. So it's a very big deal for us and it takes a lot of getting ready for. It's a big mouthful. <laughs> apple's amazing. Um is there a lot of science of apples, though? There is. It's surprising, actually. Our domestic apple, for instance, seems to have a very weird hybrid ancestry. Its chloroplast comes from uh, from the crab apple, but the rest of the genome seems to come from a, a, an Asian variety of apple that's quite different. So there's some very interesting hybridisation in there way back in time. And is it true that apple pips have got cyanide and they'll poison you? <laughs> An awful lot of plants produce cyanide. It's one of those amazing things that plants have convergently evolved. Everything from ferns to the clover in your back garden... Um, a whole range of different plants can make cyanide and, yeah, if you get enough of it, it won't do you any good. So avoid apple pips? In quantity. I'd have to eat probably 54 apples then, wouldn't I, in one <laughs> sitting? Unlikely. Also with us uh, is Peter Cowley. He's an angel investor, in fact, an award-winning angel investor and invests in new technologies. Just for people not in the know, Peter, what is an angel investor? Somebody who invests at very, very high risk, very early stage in the business, then in some cases helps the business on. So it's that initial stage. You've probably heard of a program called Dragon's Den, which actually doesn't do the angel industry very much good, but that, that shows the sort of things that people do. Why do you think it gives you a bad rap? Because they, uh, the attitude and the way that the angels or the dragons deal with the people on the program is quite different in the real world. That that is that. Program what you mean they're done. nastier in the real world? Because some of them can be very nasty on, on the telly, aren't they? Is, yes. is, is, no, is no. that reality? No, no, that's not reality, really. No, I think there's a lot of that. Like any reality television program, is done for the audience, isn't it? Thank you, Peter. So Peter's going to talk to us about tech, and he also has a very exciting gadget sitting in front of him. He's going to introduce us to later on. I'm intrigued. Sitting next to Peter is Jess Wade. Now she's a physicist at Imperial College in London. She's been on the program before. It's great to have you back, Jess. And I understand that earlier this week you were giving a science talk. No surprises there. You are a physicist, but you were doing it with your mum. I was indeed. My mother is also a scientist. She's a psychiatrist, and we went to Jodrell Bank, which is a really cool place to take your mum, especially when she's from Manchester to talk about student mental health and how PhD students specifically could access mental health support when they needed it in a time when more and more people need it, more and more people aren't getting it because the demand is so massive. And it was incredibly difficult being on stage with your mum and not calling her mum the entire time. <laughs> so I think I managed all of one time to call her Dr. Feynman. But it was great. And she put on this kind of funny, strange, serious mum voice, which was <laughs> bizarre for me to hear. But it was great. And she's brilliant. So it was really fun. I persuaded my mum to go on a lecture tour with me once around Australia. And uh, and we turned up and she looked at the schedule and she said, you know, I think I'll just stay in Perth. <laughs> so I, I went off around the rest of Australia doing this relentless, this tour. I had fun though. And then we reunited in Perth and then we went and saw some wonderful bits of Western Australia. Now sitting next to Jess is James Grime. He's a maths communicator. He's also a presenter on Numberphile, which is an online video channel about the joy of numbers. It's also the organisation that runs the Enigma Project. Now, we always like to put our mathsy people on, on test here, James. So, um, But actually, you're going to turn the tables and you have got a challenge for our panel here in the studio, but also everyone at home. What yes, is it? Indeed, indeed I do. Uh, so I thought what would be nice to try is to try some uh, estimation. I want people to consider uh, a teaspoon of sugar. So imagine a teaspoon of sugar. My question is, how many grains of sugar do you think are in that teaspoon? Peter? Yes, can we ask them not to use Google? <laughs> okay, so no Google allowed. 
That's, that's going to be a hard one to police, but we'll have a go. <laughs> uh, so, so there you are. That's James's teaser for this week. Have a think about that. You can ponder on that during the programme and we will come back and ask the panel for their thoughts and then James can tell us what he thinks is the actual answer and how he arrived at that answer later on in the programme. Right, let's kick things off with this one from Ellie. What makes some plants carnivorous? So, Beverly, it's a plant question. Over to you. you then. Um, what makes some plants carnivorous? It's a nice question. So the basic problem of being a plant compared to being an animal is that you can't move. Um, and that defines so many of the problems and solutions that plants have, have come up with. So it all comes down to nutrients and particularly to nitrogen. So just like an animal, plants need nitrogen to build proteins. All the enzymes in a plant's uh, body that function to, to do all the metabolism are built out of amino acids. And those amino acids need nitrogen. Uh, but nitrogen is really hard to get hold of. We, of course, get hold of it by eating things. So plants have a whole range of different solutions, um, and most of them are trying desperately to tap as much of it as they can out of the soil, where it's at low concentration and very difficult to mobilise. One or two plants living in generally very particularly nitrogen-poor soils, particularly acid soils and bogs and so on, um, have hit on the idea of actually just turning the tables and taking it back from the from the animals' bodies themselves. So um, they tend to have trap mechanisms that trap insects in place, um, and then once they're trapped, um, they use proteases and other enzymes to digest those animal bodies and get the protein back for themselves. They're still green, though, these plants, aren't they? So that means they must have these chloroplasts that, yep. that enable them to photosynthesize, make chemical energy using the energy in sunlight. So why do they bother doing that if they can just grab all their food from the air by being a Venus flytrap? for example. They wouldn't get very much food that way, actually. It's a very inefficient way of getting carbon from an animal's body. Much more efficient to do it by photosynthesis. Plants are much better at getting hold of carbon than any animal is. Um, and so they have the best of both worlds. They're getting the carbon from, from the atmosphere and the nitrogen from the animal's bodies all at the same time. I do you have any success growing these things at the Botanic Garden? Because <laughs> I was intrigued by them. Everyone here, I mean, have you, have you all kept these things? Like Venus flytraps are a sort of staple for, for children, aren't they? And they all died. I never managed to keep them alive. I used to feed them diligently. Maybe I fe overfed them. Maybe it was I a case of sort of a Venus flytrap obesity. I think you overfed them. So I, I can, can personally um, tell you that if you feed them tuna, they die pretty quickly. Um, tuna? <laughs> that, doesn't go, that doesn't go down well. Why would that happen? <laughs> I, I guess your average Venus flytrap doesn't meet many tuna in the wild. But who who was feeding it tuna? <laughs> well, I was just to you see did what it. Would okay, okay, <laughs> an experiment. Always the scientist. Okay, <laughs> no, they they actually don't need very much nitrogen. There's enough nitrogen in in a very infrequent dose of of small fly to keep your average carnivorous plant alive. But you're probably also growing it in the wrong soil. They need quite acidic soil types, and most people are treating them too nicely effectively it's also worth thinking about using british native ones actually if you're growing them here in this country um, we tend to look at the exotics but actually our own butterworts for instance um a bit less exotic looking than a venus flytrap and they trap their insects with sticky hairs rather than clever mechanical traps but um that that little bit easier to grow and look after I'll bear that in mind. Thank you very much, Beverly. Now, James, a fellow mathematician has been in touch with this one for you. Hello, naked scientists. My name is Bobby Seagull, and I was captain of Emmanuel College, Cambridge, on last season's University Challenge. The question I have for you is, why is 42 the answer to the universe? Well, it's, it's good to know that he's asking us a question for a change rather than having to be asked a question. So what do you actually think, James? 42, why is that a magic number? 42 is a significant number because it was used by Douglas Adams as the answer to life, the universe and everything in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. Now, I can give you Douglas Adams' answer first, uh, which is it was a joke. And he had to pick a number and it had to be small to be funny. It had to be small. It had to be not significant. Uh, so you can't have a round number. That's not funny. Uh, and 40, he thought 42 will do. And I think it's the sound as well. It has lots of oo sounds, 42 in English. So it's a funny number. It's been used before as a funny number. Uh, Monty Python have used it. Uh, Lewis Cowell also used it in the same sort of way. I know someone who used to go through the phone book and find ways of making the phone numbers into 42. Was he also Just, a mathematician? Uh, I or do not, he or she, were they a mathematician? I don't think they were. I don't think they were. Um, I, know, I think if you do something like that, uh, the number 42 should really appear one out of 100 times. So each, you know, all things being equal, each two-digit number should be appearing 
one in 100 times. There are interesting things about 42. If you fold a piece of paper 42 times, it will reach from here to the moon. I didn't think you could fold a piece no, of paper. I don't think. So if you double times. it, let's imagine doubling a piece of paper, the width would reach from here to the moon. Uh, there's someone who suggested that an efficient way of travelling around the world will be to take your two points on the globe, to drill a hole from one point to the other, have a nice frictionless tube going through the Earth, and it will take 42 minutes just by force of gravity alone, just to drift from one point, and it will always take 42 minutes no matter where you're travelling to. The only problem with that is, of course, that the, the pressure that the air would be under in that tube, because obviously as you descend further towards the centre of mass of the Earth, Gravity means that you're making the gas more and more dense. The density of the gas in the middle of that tube, I think I'm right, aren't I, Jess? It would be something like running into a brick wall. So yeah. it would probably take you a lot He's longer than your 40, 42 minutes. Yeah, Beverly? There's another answer I've seen... Um various calculations on how many kingdoms of life there are. It's very hard to decide how many kingdoms. Everyone's taught five at school, plants, animals, fungi and so on. But most of the kingdoms of life out there are microbial and they all look the same to us. They differ in their chemistry. And some of the analyses of how many kingdoms there are in biology come up with 42 as an answer. I'm not, I am not surprised. I think it's an example of a, a kind of confirmation bias. If you go looking for it, <laughs> you will find it. So we blame Monty Python and Douglas Adams. But beyond that, it's just because it sounds nice to say. I would think do, so. Do Chinese people who speak quite differently, do they like the number as well or do they have their own magic nice-to-say number? So um, I know that uh, the science communicator uh, Alex Bellos has looked at the world's favourite numbers and there are cultural uh, variations around the world. Uh, in the Western world, you've asked for a favourite number, you'll get the number seven. Uh, but in China, uh, you'll get the number four, I believe. Is it about the number of syllables in the number I know that I've, I've heard that Chinese people are much m more mathematically minded because there are far fewer syllables in their numbers, especially so going from one to ten, they can learn those much, much quicker than we can. I, I can't speak to that. Uh, I know they have different uh, systems of learning things, though. Thank you very much. Now, Jess, uh, we'd like to just uh, ask this question of you. Um, I've got here in front of me, I had to borrow this from one of my children. This is a fidget spinner. Now, for people who are not familiar, which I wasn't until my kids came home with this thing, it's a bit like a mini propeller, which uh, you have uh, a sort of central spindle that you pinch between your, your thumb and index finger, and it has sort of propeller blades sticking out, and you spin it, and it spins around on a bearing and goes around for a really long time, and it just about makes noise, which I'm, I'm making by holding it near the microphone. Um, we, we got this question from Sean, who got in touch on our Facebook page, and he said, how long would a fidget spinner like that spin if you span it in space? I think Sean has to think about all the forces that are, that are slowing the fidget spinner down once you start spinning it. And have you done any experiments at home where you started off spinning and see how long it can spin for and time it? Have the kind of audience of the naked scientists, or have you tried it? Oh, yes, the kids have been uh, actually doing that. And, and actually, they're having competitions to see who's got the best bearings in their fidget spinner. And what kind of time can they get to? Oh, something like a minute and a half, two minutes. So I think that's kind of important, what you said before about bearings. So it's working because of angular momentum, and angular momentum is conserved. We don't get... Really of angular momentum it's just transferred from one thing to the other so once you angular momentum being okay you can imagine it really nicely when you think about a ballerina or an ice skater spinning around and the person starts to spin around and puts out their their arms are out when they start spinning around and they spin around really really slowly and as they bring their arms in they start to spin around much much faster and that's because angular momentum is conserved and it's actually that the the moment of inertia the thing stopping it spin spinning around is much much smaller when you've got your arms inside so it's kind of this motion in in rotational direction so instead of moving a, a big mass through a big circle you move the same mass through a much smaller circle exactly so right. therefore you have to go faster to keep everything balanced keep and that's everything why your, your your ice skater or ballerina speeds up and the fidget spinner has got this this property angular momentum and and it can't get rid of it, it can't stop spinning it can't stop spinning and actually the way that it stops spinning is because it transfers a tiny bit of that angular momentum to the earth so as it's spinning around it makes the earth spin around the other way a tiny tiny bit slower and it starts to slow down over time the other thing that you have happening when you're spinning your nice little fidget spinner in here, is you have air resistance. So you have something pushing it back. You have something that it's going up against. And you obviously have this friction of this ball bearing. So lots of things are going against your nice fidget spinner. 
making it slow down in about two minutes. If you took it up to the ISS, and I'm sure they'll take one up to the ISS. The International next time Space Station. Up. Yeah, sorry, International Space Station friends, biology friends, but you probably knew that. But if you took one up to the ISS, you're taking, you're reducing that force of gravity. So you've really only got the air resistance. So you've got air resistance going against you. And it would probably still take, I mean, you could do it in in probably years i'd say if you were reducing the air resistance if you put it on the outside of the iss you're going to a much lower pressure there's much less air resistance out there i would say kind of timesing it what's the pressure on the outside of the iss about 10 trillionth of the pressure in in here so it's probably probably one atom per cubic meter i think is the accepted density of space not much so i would say it's probably doing the maths you could ask a mathematician, actually. <laughs> but I would say tens of millions of years for it to slow down it's if it's on the spin, outside of the ISS. Yeah, so there's an awful lot on Earth that's making that thing slow down. And yet, even if you watch it, it still doesn't seem to be slowing down very quickly. So if you took it up to space, you'd have it for a lot longer. I'm, I'm intrigued to think that by spinning my fidget spinner, that I'm making the Earth spin the other way a little bit. It's great, it's obviously right? one has to think if enough people spend their fidget spinner, would the, would the Earth slow down? And I think you can also look, if you look on the Institute of Physics website, they have some great videos about that and also the bottle flip. So the bottle flip, which was kind of the pre-fidget spinner, nice demonstration of angular momentum and great kids trend, is another thing that you can explore entirely through centre of mass and how, you, how, how different liquids that you put inside it, their viscosity and stuff like that. It's a really fun experiment for kids to do. And you can film them in slow motion on your phone and you can watch the centre of mass stay entirely stationary as the bottle flips around. But that's another great way that we can explore these things at home. And if you actually want to have a look at how to do that experiment, there is a kitchen science experiment on our website explaining that one. You go to nakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And today we've got a panel of experts who are taking on your science questions. So if there's something that you've always wanted to know, do get in touch ready for our next programme. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at thenakedscientist.com and your questions will be in that show. On the way, we'll find out whether we can detect deep underground water and how does divining really work, essentially? How did the coding machines uh, that were used in World War II work? And also, why are bees really important to plants? But before that, though, Peter, um, we're actually going to whiz on to this question, which is coming from Stacy. What is Elon Musk's Hyperloop transport system? I must admit, I'd never heard of a Hyperloop transport system, so you're going to be telling me as well. Chris, I'm surprised you haven't heard about it. You've heard about Tesla, of course, and SpaceX, no doubt, but Hyperloop something that else that he's working on. And this comes back to the 42 minutes to some extent because it's a tube that is evacuated and then will transport people from one place to another. So if you go back to um, when I was growing up in the 60s, that we had, uh, which are still are, places in, in, in retail uh, in in um, department stores which would move the cash around so you'd put something in a uh, little container and it would get sent off from the cashier's desk somewhere the, the cash would then be changed and we come back down to the to the store that's exactly the same thing so this is a long tube with a vacuum in it and then transporting down the tube a set of people um, invented in uh, actually patented by a guy in the 20s actually Robert Goddard and Elon Musk has actually done this in an interesting way he's made it open source which means that anybody around the world can use these ideas and there is there's about four or five hundred people working on this around the world um, and the ones that are closest to happening are the one between LA and San Francisco, one in Abu Dhabi, and and one in South Korea. Um, and basically what they're doing, evacuating the tube down to about a, a millibar, that's a ten thousandth of an atmosphere, and using um, either uh, the sort of hockey, air hockey uh, table approach or magnetic levitation to, to shift down a a capsule with the people in it. And how fast will they go then? It's supposed to be going, well, they're struggling a bit. There's still, for some reason, which I don't understand, which somebody else on the panel might do, there still seems to be a problem with sonic and sonic boom, even though you've only got one ten thousandth of the atmosphere. So they're looking at about the 750, 800 miles an hour. So nothing like as fast as it would be if you went round around the earth, but sorry, through the earth. But it's sort of the order of San Francisco to Los Angeles, about 350 miles. And they're talking about half an hour for that that trip. Gosh, that would speed up the commute, wouldn't it? That's, uh, if there is a me... commute, it's rather too far to commute, <laughs> I think. So, um, I think so. But if, if you could shrink travel down on that sort of scale, it, it wouldn't be, would it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly if there's something in the way, like a, a piece of ocean or something like that. Of course, the issue is the same as you get with early aviators is 
risk, isn't it? People inside this capsule, what happens if something goes wrong? What happens if the power fails? What happens if the terrorists attack, etc.? And so um, it'll be the early adopters will use it. Will you head up on one of those, Jess? No, I mean, I think it's super interesting. I was just in California and all of the bad traffic, all of the commuters' nightmares are because of things like Google and Elon Musk and Facebook. And all of those big things down in Palo Alto mean that the traffic in San Francisco and the idea of getting from San Francisco, not that you drive, obviously you have to fly, but the traffic even to the airport is horrific, all because of these people working there. And yet they're the ones developing the technology to shoot people in a tube. That's correct. But the biggest issue of all, if they haven't really adopted public transport, have it? The, the, yeah. the rail system in the states is pretty poor, isn't it? Yeah. So this is like putting a rail, a rail, sure. a, a railway line in. Instead. I like what that they've just th- skipped the train line and just exactly. let's to package Hackaloo. them in yes. a capsule. What about things like earthquakes? Because <laughs> yeah. that's pretty important there too, oh, isn't yeah. it? Um, and uh, you know that that could cause havoc if you have something hurtling along at eight hundred miles per hour, and and then suddenly it depressurizes because yeah. there's a rupture in the tube. Correct. Or just even just you know a slightest variation is going to catch the side. So would you say, is it fair to say this is not something you'll be investing in soon, Peter? Are you out? I'm definitely out of this one to use the Dragon's Tail (laughs) Thank you very much. Bit more biology now. Uh, Terry's buzzing about this one. I've often heard that bee populations are declining, and we should be worried about this, because if bees die out, it will be a disaster for our plants. But why is this? Why are bees so important to plants? Beverly? Sounds like another one for me. So back to my same point that actually... Most of the things that define how plants function compared to other organisms is that they can't move. They're they're rooted to the spot. But just like any animal, they need to find a mate and they need to get uh, the male gametes from one plant, so the sperm from one plant, to the female gametes, to the eggs of another plant. And the way they do that, um, they have to find somebody else to carry the, the stuff around for them. And the most successful and most commonly used and most popular thing for a plant to recruit to carry its pollen grains, they contain the sperm, around is a bee. And the reason for that is that bees are, are pretty smart. They can learn things. They can manipulate complicated structures. They're quite big. They can manage heavy flowers. They've got good colour vision. They can they can read cues and signals in the flower. And so actually they're really, really good pollen vectors for plants. And an enormous number of, of uh, plants rely on bees to get the male gametes from one plant to the, the female side of another. And without the bees, there wouldn't be an awful lot of plant reproduction going on. I did read a paper where scientists were showing that plants lace their nectar with caffeine and this seems to reinforce the memory of the bee for that particular flower strain and may also give the bee a bit more energy. Now is this true? (laughs) It's a very it's a a cunning strategy, it's a lovely paper Um, yeah so the flowers are rewarding the bees for doing this work with pollen um, and nectar so pollen's full of of nitrogen um, and nectar's full of sugar Uh, and different bees are collecting one or the other at different times in the the colony's life cycle Um, and you can put different things into your nectar and pollen to make them more attractive, less attractive or to attract specific insects so the basics in in nectar are sugar and water, Um, there are sometimes other micronutrients in there, the concentration of sugar might vary, the specific type of sugar might vary. And yes, some plants, it's not that common, um, the citrus family are quite good at it, um, put caffeine into their nectar. And the experiments people have done have shown that bees form a a search image of those uh, flowers with caffeine in the nectar better and remember them better than they do flowers that don't have caffeine in the nectar. Jess? Can I ask a physics-related bumblebee question? (laughs) So bumblebees feel magnetic fields, right? Mm -hmm. Do other insects feel magnetic fields? We don't really know yet. Um, there's some work on on that and on how that works in perception. But insects are it's an enormous group, and there's a lot of different a lot of variation in there. A lot of them have different visual systems, different sensory systems, and different cognitive systems. So we don't really know yet who can do what. It's extraordinary to think that they can they can navigate by magnetism anyway. That solves that one. Thank you, Beverly. Now, returning to the caffeine point, James, I once heard it said, I think Marcus de Sotoy said to me uh, that a mathematician is a machine for turning coffee into mathematical formulae and papers. I don't know whether that's true or not, but perhaps you can answer this question for us, um, which is from Amy. How did the coding machines in World War II work? So this is a reference to Enigma, isn't it? Yes, well, there are more than one code machine in World War II. We'll start with Enigma. Uh, so that's the famous one. That's the machine that was used by Nazi Germany in World War II uh, to send their secret messages. Uh, so how did it work? Well, mechanically, um, it's just a circuit. It's just a battery connected to a light. Uh, so you press a button, uh, press a letter A, for example, and the battery will connect to the letter T and it lights up. Now, what happens next is inside there is a wheel and that wheel will turn. Now, inside the wheel, it's full of wiring. 
So that's where all the wiring is. So when that wheel turns, all the wiring gets turned, which means the battery is connected to a different light, which means if I press A again, it will become a different code letter. So it's constantly changing. That's what made Enigma so difficult. to. So how did, you, how did you decode it then if you didn't know where they started on the wheel? So to decode, uh, what you need to know is you need to know the correct starting position. So maybe miles away, you have your second German officer. They have an Enigma machine as well, set up exactly the same way as the first one. Then they type in the code. It will decode the message for them because mathematically what the Enigma machine does is it turns 26 letters of the alphabet into 13 pairs. So if I press A and it becomes T, then T will become A. So it codes and decodes itself. I see. Right. And so how did when Alan Turing and his colleagues broke this code famously... How did they do it? What was the breakthrough? So, well, we, I think I should, just to be fair, we should mention that the Polish did this first. Uh, the Polish actually broke the code in 1932, uh, so long before World War II. Fantastically, though, they, they managed to work out how the machine worked without ever seeing the machine, just from the codes alone. Love that. Uh, just completely re- able to reverse engineer how the machine worked itself. And then they could build their own replicas. Uh, The Polish did have methods uh, to break those codes. Those methods were a little bit fragile and were likely to stop working. So this is what the British needed to do. They needed to come up with a method that could replace those Polish methods. Uh, Alan Turing uh, had a method that used a flaw in the machine. Uh, I talked how the machine connects one letter to another in a pair. Well, it makes 13 pairs. This means that a letter cannot be connected to itself. Now, that was a small clue. That's not much. It's a little clue. But it's just enough to start breaking the code. And so how did they do it then? Did, did, because you still don't know if you see a string of, of random, what appear to be random numbers or gibberish. How do you work out what was connected to what the day that they wrote that message, where yeah. the rotor was effectively? So what you have to do is make a guess. So you guess a word or a phrase that might be in that message. Uh, what the Germans would do in six o'clock in the morning Every morning, they would send a weather report. So it was a standard letter, it was a standard form. You knew what that weather report said, apart from the actual weather. Uh, you knew what that said. Uh, so you could use a phrase in that weather report, and you would try and find it where it fits in the code. Uh, and we have a clue, a letter can't be itself. So if we use the word weather, or wetter in German, uh, we know that a W can't become a W, an E can't become an E. Right? So we can find where it fits. We can't have a matching letter. That's not allowed. When we find a mat, or when we find a position where it fits without a match, that bit of code might be the word weather. Now we need to find the correct setting that makes that true. So the weather is always our downfall, isn't it? Thank <laughs> it you very, very much. Useful. Uh, Jess, quickly. Do you do you house an Enigma machine? Do you have one? I I do look after uh, an Enigma machine. Now cool. that is that is cool. It is cool, isn't it? I think uh, I've yeah. seen one. Simon Singh brought one to to a talk we organised. <laughs> it probably was. It, actually. It's um, very it may well have been the same machine that I look after. Thank you. Now, Peter, this question's come in, and someone wants to know what actually happened to Google Glass. And yeah, you're right. It seems to have completely vanished. So what was Google Glass? And for those not in the know, and where's it gone? Yeah, Google Glass introduced in 2013 and and sort of disappeared a couple of years later. It was a set of glasses that had built in an Android computer, a camera and earpiece and a microphone. And the idea behind it was that you could effectively use it as, uh, and it had a projection as well onto the glass, so you could actually see a screen. So the idea was effectively a wearable computer. But there were a number of things wrong with it. The, the most important thing of all was the privacy issue. And I remember being at a pitch event once where somebody was pitching to me, and this guy said, do you mind if we record the pitch? And both with the, there was about six of us in the room, including somebody from Imperial College, and we looked at each other and thought, we can't really say no because we're technology investors, but we don't really feel very good about it. And that, I think, was part of the problem that pushed back on it. So, but Google have reintroduced it, actually, only just recently in the last couple of months, it, an, an enterprise edition. So what they've done is upgraded it. They've made it uh, obviously better. Technology moves on. They've also made it a, a, as a module which will fit onto safety glasses. It'll fit onto um, uh, spectacles, uh, prescription spectacles, etc. And it's been used in industry for quite a long time, in the last couple of years. It's been used for picking. So you're picking stuff off shelves, for instance being used for by um, in, in uh, training. There's a whole stack of applications for it, which is very limited. So they've decided that the general public 
don't necessarily aren't ready for it, which is probably true. Oh, it's also got a red light that says you re- it's recording as well, but that's fairly minor. I'm sure that could be covered up if necessary. So as a, as a, effectively as a business tool, it's out there still, and that will grow, there's no doubt. Whether it goes back into, or when it goes back into the public domain, I'm not sure. Thank you, Peter. Now, onto this uh, somewhat chemical conundrum, I think. This is coming from uh, Thomas, who's listening to us, and he says, I want to know, why does H2O, water, not conduct electricity very well, but tap water and pool water does seem to conduct electricity much better. Why is this, Jess? This is a great question, a great nice chemistry question that you can do some experiments with at home. Basically, um, tap, well, H2O, as as Thomas puts it, doesn't have any kind of ions in it that could move the, the electricity around. So to move electricity, you need something that's going to transport it. And you need something like the nice salt that's in most tap water or the chlorine that's in pool water. And these things, salt contains sodium and chlorine, and these things can capture the electricity and move it through the liquid and take it to the other side. So if you've got a battery, you could you could check that it's working. You can also do another really neat experiment at home where you get those sports drinks. So sports drinks make kind of big claims about the electrolytes that they have inside them. And you can actually test that by setting up a kind of little circuit and seeing whether you could conduct through a sports drink because those things should also be able to conduct electricity. So if you have a swimming pool, you can do it because you can use the chlorine ions. If you've got normal water, you can do it because it's probably got salt in and you can get rid of most of the minerals i think within water can't conduct so that's your limiting factor there you have lots of stuff inside normal water that you get out but they're not conductive so you need something it can conduct so would pure water pure clean distilled water still conduct electricity or not no not at all if it didn't have any salt in it shouldn't conduct electricity at it's all. a little bit ionized though isn't it you get a tiny bit of of breaking of the the h2o goes into a bit of h plus and a bit of oh okay so probably you can get a, a teeny teeny tiny bit but probably nothing that we could detect nothing that would be meaningful nothing that would be meaningful for thomas okay there you go thomas thank you very much You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And I'm joined by a panel of experts who are taking on the science questions that you have been sending in. We have got plant scientist Beverly Glover, maths communicator James Grime, physicist Jess Wade and our tech expert Peter Cowley. And if you would like to get a question into a programme like this, send them in now to chris at thenakedscientist.com or we'll pick them up from Twitter too. It's at Naked Scientists. Now, we have a little quiz for you lot. Uh, We thought this would be fun to give you a little quiz question. So, uh, as usual, I'm going to have three rounds. We're going to have uh, one question for each of two teams. So we have Jess and Peter on one team. We've got James and Beverly on the other team. I'll ask you something. You tell us with conferring whether or not you think it's right or what you think the answer is, and then we'll give you either a bing if you get it right or a bong if you get it wrong. Right, question one. This is uh, for Beverly and James. Question one. The light bulb was invented by Thomas Edison. Is that a science fact or is that a science fiction, do you think? I believe I could answer this one, yeah. Um, that's, that sounds like nonsense to me. Oh, dear. Um, I think he <laughs> might have um, been one of the early uh, people who profited from electricity and the light bulb, uh, but I do not think that it's correct to say that he invented the light bulb. Yep, you're on the money. It's now generally accepted that British physicist Joseph Swan was the inventor of the modern light bulb. Edison developed a commercially viable and practical electric light bulb for the mass market. So well done to you two. Okay, over to Jess and Peter. Radiation was discovered by Marie Curie. Science fact or science fiction, do you think? I suspect not. I think it's probably the same, that she was known for it, but not uh, was the one. Do you know, Jess? I have never worked with... I I mean, she's the big name, right? So I'm assuming in the same way to the other one. Yes. She probably <laughs> was the first one to measure it, maybe. But Yes. Sorry, yeah, I was looking I want to come up with a, a great answer about who actually did discover it, but maybe they died going, too quickly. Are we going fact or fiction? We're going fiction. Fiction, yeah. 
Sorry, my mouse button wouldn't work for a minute. <laughs> We're both on one point each. So this is quite tense this week. Normally by this time, we've already got a, we've already got a lead. Sorry, sorry, James. Discovery of radiation was that? Um, I will answer. I'll tell you right. So Marie Curie is often credited with the discovery of radiation, but she actually coined the term radioactivity. But it was actually her doctoral supervisor, who is Henri Becquerel, who first discovered its existence. He was the one who famously showed that uranium salts, if you put them on a hard piece of, of paper or card that you had wrapped around photographic plate could fog the photographic plate so there was some invisible ray that was going through the card and hitting the photo plate isn't light radiation yes it is and and Röntgen had invented x-rays before that and used his wife's hand to produce some of the first x-rays but actually radiation um, in terms of radioactivity that we're talking about here was invented not by Curie but by Becquerel we measure it in Becquerel, right? So that's right. He does so get he, some gives credit. His, he gets his credit. He gets his name on the on the unit. That's right. Right now, now we're on to round two, which is firsts. We're calling this round firsts. Now, what Beverly and James was the first animal to orbit the Earth? Oh, that sounds Ooh. like fun. I think uh, it was a dog, wasn't it? Yeah, um, a Russian dog. Dog sounds like a good answer. You, you, you think I think of chimpanzees, oh, I think it was uh, a dog. but I think it might be rats or mice. Ooh. I think it might be something simpler. Um, do you want to go for dog or <laughs> rats or mice? I want to go dog. Okay, we'll go dog. <laughs> yep, the, the Soviet <laughs> right. Union led the way on this one. They were the first to send an animal into orbit, and Laker, who was formerly a stray dog on the streets of Moscow, uh, she was the first animal officially to orbit the Earth when she successfully blasted into space aboard Sputnik 2 in November 1957. We do have to acknowledge, though, that she didn't come back, and there was no way to retrieve her from space um, with the technology they had at the time. So unfortunately she went up, she was a pioneer, but she also died up there. Now, question four. Um, this is for you guys. What came first, Jess and Peter? A genetically modified plant or a genetically modified animal? I, I have, don't know. I think it was a plant. Yes, it was more likely to be a plant, isn't it? But... It's easier, maybe. Oh, sorry. <coughs> don't want to get in there with that. Um, I have a feeling that an animal came much later. Didn't was Okay, I'm going to say something stupid about Dolly the sheep. That wasn't... Um, the first time they're genetically modified an animal. Let's go with plant. Yep. Oh, no. Did you know that one, Beverly? I think I did. Yeah, it actually, the answer is that in 1974, Rudolf Janisch made the first genetically modified mouse. We've had Rudolf Janisch on this programme. He was actually one of the scientists who invented or co-invented the IPS, the induced pluripotent stem cell, where they reprogram an adult cell to become a stem cell. But he produced the first genetically modified mouse in 1974. It wasn't till 1983 that the first GM plant, which was actually a strain of tobacco, got produced by Michael Bevan, Richard Flavell and Mary Dell Chilton. Now, why do people assume plants are easier than animals? Because it would appear from this discovery that they're not, Beverly. I think it's about where the, where the effort had gone in, actually. So plants probably are easier because the trick about any kind of genetic modification is you modify a single cell and then you want to generate the whole organism back from that. Um, and as we know with animals, that means taking either taking a stem cell and modifying that or um, taking a, a cell that's already committed to a fate and de-differentiating it back to a stage where it can create anything. Um, that's really tricky. Uh, that's why there's so much research on stem cells. Whereas with plants, actually, all cells are pluripotent and you can persuade pretty much any cell in a plant to regenerate a whole new plant if you give it the right hormones and the right So sugars. why did it take so long to do a plant compared to a mouse? There's an awful lot less plant scientists out there than there are animal oh, scientists. That, that will be the reason then. Right, OK, Beverly and James, in one second... Um, we want now what larger, what's larger. So this is all about size or scale. In one second, what's larger? The number of dead skin cells that drop off your body or the number of laps of the 27-kilometre-long Large Hadron Collider um, circuit that's made by a packet of protons. So what's more? Dead skin cells falling off your body every second or the number of laps done by a packet of protons in the 27-kilometre-long loop of the Large Hadron Collider? Um, what do you think? Uh, do you think? I think skin cells. You think skin cells? It sounds. It's, it sounds like you want to say yeah. hadron collider, and so I'm going to yeah think that they're trying to trick us. Okay. And say skin cells. Yeah. 
No, no, the answer is the proton lapse, actually. Scientists estimate the average person sheds about 500 million skin cells in a day, so that's about 6,000 dead skin cells dropping off you every second. But travelling at just three metres per second slower than the speed of light, CERN reckoned that the protons accelerated in their LHC complete over 11,000 laps of the 27-kilometre-long ring every second. So the protons currently clinch it. Right, it is... All to play for, okay? So it's it's level pegging, so you've got to save your reputation here, Jess and Peter. Okay, here we go. The weight of all humans on Earth or the weight of all ants on Earth? Which is bigger, the humans or the ants, do you think? I would guess ants. The number of ants on this globe must be astronomical. Yeah. Astronomically more. I'm with with you on ants. Yeah. Yeah. They're underneath as well. They win. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, actually, it's the humans. Okay. Ants what weigh. If we take out China. Ant, <laughs> ants weigh about five milligrams, and we think, although we don't know, but scientists think there are 10,000 trillion ants no. on Earth. So a likely estimate for their combined mass would be about 40 billion kilos or so. There are over 7 billion humans, though, and their combined weight is more than 300 billion kilos if you take everyone over the age of about 15. So we outweigh the ants by almost an order of magnitude. But historically, if we'd been doing this quiz in the 18th century, you probably would have been right because scientists also extrapolated backwards and suggest that around the time of the Industrial Revolution, so the 1700s, ants did probably outweigh us because there were fewer people around. Can I challenge the 5 milligrams per ant? You can certainly challenge it. I'm not going to give you a point. <laughs> <That does> you... <laughs> seems remarkably low. Well, no, it, it, it's true. It's true. Ants, ants range between about one milligram and about 50 milligrams for some really big ones. Right? So actually, yes. And if you look at the... Beverly, do you know about ants? Yeah, and you even get variation on that kind of order of magnitude within a single ant species. So within a colony, you've got worker ants and soldier ants and the different types of ants, and you can have enormous variations in size. Scientists actually use them to try and understand um, how body mass and, and things like claw sharpness scale with size because they're such a variable group now isn't that wonderful we've ended with both teams scoring the same so you're level pegging and you depart with your reputation intact you're listening to the naked scientist with me chris smith and this week we're answering the science questions that you've been sending in helped by this wonderful panel of scientists and thank you very much for lending your brains to our quiz this week now uh, we have a question here from chris heron who wants to know we hear from time to time they've discovered a new highest known prime number but this is now over 17 million digits So I know we can't possibly know all the prime numbers up to that. So what I'd like to know is how far up do we actually know all the primes? Thank you for that, Chris. James, what do you think? So a prime number you may remember from school are those numbers that can only be divided by one and itself. Uh, you're right, you will hear in the news announcements about you know the newest, largest prime number we found. The reason that's important is we do use large prime numbers in encryption and, and in internet encryption, um, but also it's an exercise in our computers, in computational power, and so that's why we have holes. We haven't been working out the primes one at a time, uh, which you can do if... Uh, Uh, ancient methods by sieving through the numbers. What we have instead are probabilistic methods uh, to work out extremely high prime numbers. No, we haven't been working through them one at a time. Where does it stop? Where where is that first gap? It must be huge. Um, I do not know that number off the top of my head, but it must be absolutely massive. Riemann, who is a famous mathematician, had a prize I think it's a million dollars has been put up, isn't it, for someone who can come up with a formula for predicting prime numbers, but it's never been claimed. That's right. That's the uh, the Riemann hypothesis. Uh, so Riemann, this must be around 1850, uh, came up with this um, uh, uh, function uh, that could be used to work out um, not where the prime numbers are, but where the where we're counting the prime numbers. So we want to know how many prime numbers are less than 100. Uh, so I don't know what that is. I think it's like 22 of them or something. Uh, you might want to know how many prime numbers less than a billion. Right? So we need to, to know that proportion. Uh, Riemann had a method for working out what the error might be in that formula. And that will help us predict the pattern in the primes. Let's hope so. And then you can make yourself a million, couldn't you? If you can... And then, you'll, then you, will, can, you, can, you can claim, claim the prize. this million dollar prize. Absolutely. 
Wonderful. Thank you very much, James. Right, Jess, uh, Devaraj has been in touch and he wants to know, can any electromagnetic waves, these are things like radio waves, light and so on, travel through hard rock into the Earth's surface so we can find deep underground water? I think that they do detect deep underground water using this. I think first you can do it with electricity in a similar way to what we were talking about before about water being non-conductive. You can basically put electricity into rocks and set up two little electrodes and find out water based on how non-conductive your rocks are. So you can make estimates about how conductive different rocks are because of the ions that are inside them. But does that tell you that there's a big pool of water? Well, so you can because you can make a, you can make it a educated guess about how conductive a surface should be based on the rocks that there are inside it and then you can tell how non-conductive it is because of this big body of something that's basically an insulator but you can also do um, much more clever ways kind of a bit similar to MRI so you can excite the kind of hydrogen nuclei inside water and look at the signals that they give off and you can use that to estimate how much, again, how much water is under there. And then you can even do more clever things when you've got this water. You can find out how old it is by doing things like carbon dating. So you can figure out how old this pool of water is and the kind of flow and stuff like that. Uh, by and a V-shaped birch log, is that good? Uh, yeah, you can do that if you've got a nice tree, I think, if you're going in, <laughs> into that way. No, but I'm I pretty just... sure you can you can detect waves underground, right? You can detect electromagnetic waves underground, and that's actually probably how an awful lot of earthquake detection and stuff like that happens. So, Thanks, Jess. Right, Beverly. talking of the ground, there's never a shortage of weeds. And what Lucy wants to know is, why are weeds so hard to get rid of? Why do they persist? Well, that's because that's what their job is. So there are, there are basically um, a group of scientists, a group of plant scientists set out a theory for ways to be a plant, different um, ways to approach life as a plant about 30, 40 years ago now. And they said, you know, you can be a kind of stay still and grow slowly and hang on to all your resources plant, something fairly grumpy like a cactus. You can be a, a grow fast and strong and uh, beat all the competition but not reproduce very quickly plant. So you might think of something like a bramble. Or you can be a live fast and die young plant. So live fast, die young, but throw out a lot of seed while you're doing it. And that's basically the strategy weeds take. So you can dig up one of them, but it's only lived a few weeks. And in that few weeks, it might have thrown out a million seeds. And they'll come up as soon as you pull up the first one. And bindweed, because that has a different strategy, isn't it? That has roots that are extremely fragile, but it can clone the plant back from any tiny bit of them. So it's more in the bramble category. It's actually a competitor. It'll keep going endlessly. Thank you very much. Now, Peter, um, we've got a question from Vinny who wants to know what is the smallest microchip that we can make and how powerful is it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure he means microchip. Uh, let's just do a bit of uh, background. So first of all, the track width of a transistor nowadays has got down to about 7 nanometers. Now, Transistors but, are the things inside chips exactly, that make the, exactly, the computer yes, tick okay. effectively, aren't so they? So that's not actually in production yet. They're, they're down to about 10 nanometers. That's about the 10,000th of human hair. It's, it's um, Visible light is 40 times big, wider than that, the, the wavelength of that. But I, I'm sure that's not the question because that, a, a transistor is just on or off. We're probably talking about its microprocessors and I brought in something that's about the so same This which is the gadget isn't it, that, um, that you said to me, you'd, you'd brought this in and we said at the beginning, Peter's brought a gadget in and he's going to tell us what it is. This is a big box, it's probably about 20 centimetres by 15 centimetres and about 5 deep um, with lots of wires and circuit yes. boards in it. What is that? So this is the first computer that I developed and uh, built, as you can see, very badly That's built, a computer. Back in 1975 wow. and the reason I brought it in is because it had a processor in there that had about 4,000 transistors on it, called a SCAMP, in fact. Uh, this, this, this has 32 bytes of memory. Gosh, you know, that's you a can't lot, do much it? with 32 yeah. bytes of memory, can you? <laughs> but I just wanted to compare that with modern microprocessors. What does or that do? Why did you build that? What did I it do? Built that, built it because I want to learn how to, how to build a computer, not because right. I necessarily want to do anything with it. You have to enter the, on the front side, there are some switches, and you have to enter the program on these switches. There's 16 bytes of RAM, so you have a maximum of 16 instructions, <laughs> and it will switch some LEDs on. Uh, light emitting diodes on on the front. Anyway, that was just an example of that. But nowadays we've got processors that have got billions of transistors in rather than a few thousand um, that are about six, seven, eight hundred square uh, millimetres. And you've got GPUs, which are even more. But I think actually... Nice graphics processing graphic units. Graphics processing yeah. The question is possibly to do with how are we going to do it in the future? Quantum computing, where you've got multiple of these quantum bits, or there's a, an investment I nearly made here in Cambridge which was storing data as strands of DNA. Then you've got something. Then you've got petabyte. You've got huge amounts of volume of data, possibly as much as there's on the on the Earth in the size of a bucket, really. 
Yeah, the, the DNA thing at the moment is being held back by the fact that it's extremely expensive to make and then decode well, to DNA. to write, and it's not, not too... Uh, to read, it's not too bad because there have been sequences yeah, around to for write, years. To, to, make write, the, to make the DNA is, is very expensive, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. But people are saying it's a bit like the sort of Rosetta Stone. It's it's a very long-lived, very it's, stable molecule that you could put your information in exactly. and you know it will the be resilient. It last hundreds of yeah. millions of years, exactly, for long-term storage. Well, thank you for that, Peter. Right, moving on. Beverly, we've got this question here for you, which says, is it better to water a potted plant from the surface of the soil or putting some water in the saucer underneath so it comes up through the ground underneath? I must admit I've wondered this as well because I'm guilty of just sort of plonking some water on at the bottom of the stem. Am I doing a bad thing? Well, you might be. Uh, I, one of the uh, the biggest insults one of my gardeners at the Botanic Garden can say of another of his colleagues is that they're a classic overwaterer, and a classic overwaterer always waters from the top down. Um, but actually, it doesn't really matter which way you do it, as long as you don't leave them sitting in it. So the problem with water, from a plant's point of view, is that their roots need to be able to respire, just like the above ground tissues. They need to be able to take in oxygen and give out carbon dioxide, and they can't do that if they're waterlogged. So as so long as whichever you do, you give it a few minutes and then you drain away the excess, it'll probably turn out all right. Because someone said to me, you mustn't water your African violet from the top because it will go all rotten and mouldy and manky. And I must admit, I, I did water an African violet like that. It was my wife and I killed it and I felt terribly, terribly guilty. Am I off the hook? I think you are off the hook. You'd have killed, you'd have killed it either way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Beverly. So I want to canvas everyone here and ask you, James said, how many grains of sugar are there on a level teaspoon? So let's just go around the room uh, and have your estimates. Beverly, how many would you pick if you had to, to pick a, a sugar count? I can think of how to do it. I can't think what the number would end up like. Talk us through what, you're, what you would think. <laughs> well, I need to know the volume of my grain of sugar. And was it granulated mm-hmm. or castor? I think we mm-hmm. agreed castor. Mm-hmm. I need to know the volume of my teaspoon. And then that's a fairly simple sum. The volume of the teaspoon is presumably quite hard. Oh, no, we know what it is. It's five mils. It would so, be quite no, hard to calculate. I think, your, I think your method is, is excellent. <laughs> but you have uh, to give us a number. You can't get out of it. So what's million. your number? 50, 50 million. OK, 50 million from Beverly. Jess? I weigh lots of small stuff in the lab. I was going to say before I work in printed electronics and we use tiny, tiny little amounts of polymer or small molecule. I would say that a grain of sugar weighs about half a milligram. Uh, yeah, it's about, well, it's, I've got here 0.2 milligrams. Okay, so, so I'm going to go with like 25,000. 25,000 particles. And Peter? I'm going to use a special number, 3 to the power of 6. 3 to the power of 6. And what's, 729. What's the now, I know it's too low, but I suspect 25,000. No, no, I couldn't get it that low. <laughs> so, uh, well, James, you, you better tell us then, put us out of our misery then. Who's closest? Yeah, well, I think, uh, I think a, a very excellent answer was Jess with uh, 25,000. Uh, I have an answer here of 20,000 uh, based on uh, four grams of sugar uh, weighing about 0.2 milligrams. Okay, so can you show us your working? Because that's very mm. important in maths to always show your working, isn't it? So how did you do that? And you have to do it in 30 seconds. <laughs> so uh, like Beverly's method, uh, we can look at uh, how big the crystals are. Uh, the diameter of a crystal might be about 0.7 millimetres. We have to look at how efficiently they're packed in as well, because there is space in between them. So we're thinking about 60% uh, packed in. Uh, and uh, going through the calculations, we will get the answer 20,000. Well, I'm glad that we got to the bottom of that one. Thank you very much, James. And thank you to our other guests this week, Jess Wade, Beverly Glover and Peter Cowley. The producer was Tom Crawford. Do join us next time when we're going to be putting the pharmaceutical industry under the microscope. Where do new drugs come from in the first place? We'll also hear about a breakthrough in treating blood cancers. And why has one of the world's leading pharmaceutical companies moved to Cambridge. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. From me, Chris Smith, and from the rest of the team, until next time, goodbye.